Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 4. We'll look at two verses together from the Apostle Paul. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. Into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, and when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, now as we humble ourselves before your very word, we need you most of all to speak the truth in love to us. For that is what your plan has been from before the foundation of the world, to communicate to us your word. And you have done it most powerfully and eternally in the person of the word, work of the Lord Jesus Christ who was the word made flesh. And you have given to us a record, a record of your truth known as the Holy Scriptures. And it is a living word. And today we would ask that it would come to do its work upon us. That more than us reading it, Lord Jesus, we would ask for this word to read us. We would ask that it would cut through to all of the corners of our soul, that it would slice through bone even unto marrow, and that in its precision, it would with, with surgical healing wound us in order to heal us and give to us the truth and grace that our souls this morning so desperately need. Father, be mindful of who we are right now in your presence and what it is that we need. Come and show yourself to us in a way that we could never see with our own mind's eye. We're dependent on you. Grace us with your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the questions that we ask new members as they're making their way into the body of Christ here at Cornerstone is, will you submit yourselves to the governance and the discipline of the church? And will you study or even strive for its purity and peace? Usually when we discuss that question in the Exploring Cornerstone class, there's you know, always a few of us that have feel a bit of a pause at the language of submit yourselves to the discipline. That's not my favorite phrase to ever hear when somebody mentions it in that way. In fact, you'll notice in the pastoral notes even this morning, writing a bit on what the discipline of the church is all about. But one of the things that I say when we're walking through that Exploring Cornerstone class to introduce this particular vow, as I say, 
these vows are not merely the way that you get into the life of the body of Christ here at Cornerstone. It's the way that you get on in the life of Cornerstone. Meaning you don't just say on the front end, yeah, I guess I'll do that. But you live in such a way as to be mutually submissive to the brethren and the discipline of a local body so that by your presence in following Christ, this body becomes more peaceful and more pure. That would be a remarkable thing, wouldn't it? To have new members who, who join and as the body grows in its number and in its depth of maturity, we can say one of the pronounced evidences of God's grace in our midst is that this body has become more peaceful and more pure because those who have joined have submitted themselves to the discipline of this local church. Now, when we use the language of discipline, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, some of us think of, you know, you know, daddy's paddle, you know, or we think of standing, you know, in a corner with a cone on our head, or but we think of the traumatic experiences of discipline as we grew up, and we think primarily, don't we, in negative categories. Um, it's because our experience of discipline is, is usually negative. And we translate the concept of discipline in a negative direction. And, and so many times, even parents in their discipline and grandparents in discipline, discipline in a manner that is negative. And that's part of what discipline is. When you deliver a spanking, for instance, that's a stop doing this discipline. <laughs> you did something, you felt this, that should tell you to stop doing this. That's what we're trying to say in a moment like that. However we do it, it's a stop action discipline. But it's not a positive one. It's not saying start do this, start doing this, or do this instead. That requires positive instruction. Uh, that requires modeling. That requires teaching. That requires a whole lot of other things. And sometimes we come to figure out what we're supposed to do because we do all of the wrong things first, and by the process of elimination, <laughs> we get to recognize, oh, I just should do this, shouldn't I? Yes, you should. In reality, we are all, at all times, in the body of Christ under discipline. That's why you vow it at the very beginning. You're always under positive discipline. Today, not to surprise you or to shock you or to upset you, you're under discipline because you're sitting under the teaching of the Word of God. Uh, the word discipline in its etymology comes from the word disciple. You can see how closely they are aligned. It means that you're being instructed to follow in some path. It's a very positive thing. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. And so when you're walking through discipline in the body of Christ, the recognition is that all of us at varieties of times need positive instruction to continue to show us how we need to live and what does it mean to follow Christ. And then occasionally, we need some stop-action discipline to teach us what it is we don't need to do and in some ways to rescue us. Isn't that what a parent is trying to do oftentimes? To rescue a child in those moments? You want to see the peace and the purity of this local congregation grow. You know what that vow is saying? Then submit yourselves to the discipline of the local body. Love the discipline of the local body. In its positives and in its negatives. Because as you learn to love the truth of the scriptures of God, 
you begin to find that by following them and by being conformed into them, you begin to experience the love and the joy of Christ in a way that you never could have experienced otherwise. You know, when God gives you a command, He's not trying to keep you from some joy that you couldn't get any other way. In fact, His commands are like fences around a playground. And he says, you have fun within the fences. But you know, if you, if you jump the fence and you run it in the road, you might get hit by a car. And I don't put up the fence because I don't love you. I put up the fence because I love you. Now, the reason that's an important introduction to where the Apostle Paul is actually taking us today is the discipline of the local body we usually think of, as is mentioned there in the vow that we take as we enter into the body of Christ here at Cornerstone, is seen exclusively within the governance of the body. Elders are responsible for enacting these things. Pastors are responsible for teaching these things. But what the Apostle Paul actually tells us here is that all of us are responsible for these things. That yes, pastors and elders have specific responsibilities within the scope of studying for the peace and the purity of a local body. But actually, the role is much deeper and more profound and more pervasive because indeed it is pastor-teacher's responsibility to, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.12, the verses just previous to the ones we read, that these gifts have been given to the body, speaking of teachers and preachers, for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. You may have seen preachers and teachers and elders as the people who do all the ministry. You know, I come here to get ministered to, and that's what they're, you know, that's their one deal. That's what they're supposed to do. Paul actually says, no, 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 what actually pastor, elders, and teachers are doing to equip the saints in order to do the work of ministry, which means that if pastors and teachers are in some ways doing all of the work of ministry, they're robbing the saints of their calling. It's critical that you give the ministry out to the people of God. It's critical that the people of God are equipped and trained to do the work of ministry. Now that's why we're spending a couple of weeks not just on the doctrine of repentance and the practice of repentance, but what does it mean for us as a congregation to be equipped to become a community that begets repentance in one another? So we don't just lean on a few people, but we as a body take up that mantle together. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here. And very interestingly, within the structure of this passage, the Apostle Paul at the beginning, as we read just a moment ago, is calling for the unity of the body of Christ. He's urging for the oneness to be experienced within the body of Christ, the peace and the purity. And he references then in verse 8... He references the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus has ascended on high. And when Jesus ascended on high, he then poured out his spirit and he gave gifts, apostles, preachers, teachers, to the, to the church. And their responsibility is to quit the saints for the work of ministry. And then he goes on to say, then the body, as the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry happens, you know what happens? The body begins to grow up into maturity. All of the joints fit together. You saw the analogy that we used here. Um, all, of the, all of the joints begin to function as they ought to, and all of the synapses begin to fire, and all the muscle tension that's needed for the health of the body of Christ begins to take shape when the saints are equipped for the work of ministry through the preachers and teachers of a local congregation. And then in verse 
15 and 16, which are the ones that he's giving us, he's showing us here's what your real calling is as a local body. Towards one another for the begetting of repentance continually as a daily exercise in the life of a congregation. Speak the truth in love. That's what it's going to take for this growing up into the body of Christ to happen. And what we've actually seen at this point in church history up to the point of Ephesus is what we've seen is the unfolding of the book of Acts is that repentance almost never comes on your own. It's never been designed to come on your own. The first church-wide repentance, the first corporate repentance that we see post the ascension of Jesus and the descending of the Holy Spirit and the first preaching through the apostles came in Acts chapter 2 with Peter, correct? And in those moments, he preached, and he preached, you know what he preached? He preached one of the most unfriendly seeker sermons you would ever see in human history. It is full of correction, full of scathing rebuke, (laughs) And at the end of that message, you think, wow, he probably ran off everybody. And the response was, they were cut to the heart. And their question was, what what must we do? And he has one word, repent. Repent. Spoke the truth in love. It had a cutting to the heart effect upon the life of God's people. They, in response to the grace that was poured out in the preaching of God's word, said, what must we do? His response to them was, Repent. And that word of repent was not a one-time instance. It was the beginning of what will continue to be the daily exercise of the life of faith for the Christian. And so in some ways, repentance, though personal for every single one of us, is never a private matter. It's never something you do on your own. It's always something that is in relationship with others. Whether it's with a preacher or it's with a mom and dad, or it's with a friend, or it's with an employer, whoever brings to you truth and love that cuts to the heart, that causes you to repent, whatever instrument the Lord uses, and can't you look back over the history of your life and see that the Lord has used a multitude of instruments to bring you to those places, whatever those instruments are, he says that their summary of their work has been speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. So I want to just look really briefly and fairly practically at what it means to speak the truth in love and really give us a little bit of a training ground to be a community that doesn't just go, oh, I understand repentance and that I need to do it. And here's what it looks like. But what does it mean to actually begin to be a people who beget repentance in one another because we love each other so much and we want to see Christ conformed into each other's hearts and souls? What would that begin to look like? So I want you to see in this passage that the content of our speech is truth. The content of our speech is truth. The manner of our speech is love. And the person within our speech is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, the content of our speech is truth. The manner of our speech is love. And the person within and behind and around our speech is Jesus Christ, the one who is John 1, full of grace and truth. It's full of both of these things. Now, we know that this idea of truth-telling is something that the Scripture has fundamentally called us to. 
and that truth-telling means that we must know the truth first in order to be able to tell the truth. This is why Paul, in instructing Timothy, his Padawan in the faith, he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Follow the pattern of sound words. The words that you've heard from me, follow them, uh, meaning both follow in the instruction of them, live out the truth of those words, but also in your teaching and preaching, use the very words. Use the pattern of sound words, use the instruction of words that I've given to you in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. It's almost the identical language that we see here in Ephesians chapter 4. Truth, faith, and love in Christ Jesus. It's the same language that Paul uses to Titus. Notice how strongly he says it. Teach only that which accords with sound doctrine. Teach only that which accords with sound doctrine. Doctrine, you know, that's that big, ugly, terrible, dry, dusty word, right? Doctrine. Doctrine is inescapable in every sphere of our lives. And it's not an easy thing to always know if we've truly grasped the truth. Right now, even in the midst of our own hearts and lives, there are things that are unequivocally true that we believe that are in accord with sound doctrine and the truth. There are other things that we believe that are out of accord, that we don't even know that are out of accord in our minds and hearts right now to the truth because we haven't put them up to the measuring stick of the truth yet. We haven't, in a sense, evaluated. It may be something that we passed on, you know, from our mama's knee forward, something we picked up in some leadership podcast along the way that sounded like it rung true, or, you know, something we read on a blog or something that we picked up in school or whatever it was, and we, we kind of held it as doctrinal truth, but in reality, if we were to put it up next to the measurement of the Bible, it would probably fall short to the nature of what real truth is. And that's true of all of us. You know, if we knew where the holes in our theology were, we'd probably plug them up. Um, but in many cases, the very reality of sin and the struggle of actually knowing the truth is that we are all at some level partially deceived. We don't see our own blind spots well enough to know where some of those blind spots are. The nature of a blind spot is you don't see it. Right? If it's a blind spot. You're, you're not going to see it. So, so who do you need to help you see that you have a blind spot? Somebody else's eyes. It's just the very nature of the language. The idea of deception is brought into that. And because we have both the reality of Christ in his truth, but also we're still sinners and broken, we are a mix of these two things. This is why the apostle um, Paul is so constant in his letters in the New Testament of instructing the people of God in the truth of God. If you look at any of the letters, whether it's Galatians or Colossians or, or um, Ephesians, the one that we're in now, what is Paul regularly doing? Correcting false teaching. Steering and guiding the people of God. Because it's very hard to stay still and it's a lot easier to drift when it comes to doctrine, when it comes to truth. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to drift. And so putting the anchor down in the Word of God is absolutely essential. And this is, you know, when Jesus, when Jesus showed up, he began to expose the false doctrines or the false teachings of the Pharisees. And we saw that in Mark chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. He says, in vain do they worship, speaking of the Pharisees, teaching doctrines, the commandments of men. 
teaching as doctrine, teaching as truth, what is really just a commandment of men, a kind of legalism. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, in later times, which is the times in which we live, some will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Have you ever thought of false teaching as sourced by the evil one? Paul says it very clearly here in Timothy. And the goal of the evil one is what? To deceive. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. So when we think about truth, the very important part is we have, to, we have to have sound words. We have to have sound doctrine. Because if we have sound doctrine, it's that doctrine that makes sound people. It's that truth given in love that begins to have the effect on soundness within the body of Christ, both individually and corporately. Now here's what's interesting with that word sound, mentioned in Titus and Timothy. It's, it's a word that literally means healthy, uh, which is why the Apostle Paul uses this metaphor of body. If you speak the sound words of truth and love, what begins to happen is the, like a body begins to function better. The body of Christ begins to function uh, better. That's the principle that he's making here. If you can think about it this way, we as the body of Christ are meant to be equipping the saints here at Cornerstone for the purpose of becoming spiritual trainers and doctors who can serve each other with the truth couched in a spirit of love. That's what we're actually called to do. What that means is that when we come into the body of Christ, we are going to be commending spiritual exercise routines that will help you get into the truth of love. A spiritual diet of fruits and vegetables and lean meats so that you're, you're, you're fit in terms of your soul. We're, if you're struggling, we want to be people who are diagnosing spiritually the sicknesses that you're facing and then applying remedies and medicines and elixirs that go directly in accord with the kind of spiritual disease that is being faced. In fact, the language of, of shepherding or caring for the flock of God over the years has been a language of cure of souls. That in relationship with each other, we actually get healthier because we're leading each other into the truth with a sense of love and there's a health that begins to take place. Now, now what this means is we want to become a people who are actually skilled in that. Now, some of us, maybe you're listening to me right now and you're thinking, well, I'll never be that, you know. I can, I can never do that. I can never sit with somebody and, you know, I'm sheepish about, you know, speaking into their life or saying anything. And I, I've not really, you know, achieved some platform or plateau of spiritual maturity where I've gained the ability uh, to do that. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Um, if you've received Christ and you have grace and you have a Bible, then, then you're equipped to begin that work at some level. At some level. Um, there may be things that you're going to constantly get stumped on in the midst of doing the work of caring for each other spiritually. That's okay. That happens all of the time. There's lots of grace for that, and there's a whole body of Christ you can talk to about that to give wisdom. That's why we're together. That's why we're supposed to do it together is that we need each other for the advice and the instruction, the guidance that comes from the Word and to bring it to light. But the fact that we are all called to that work is inescapable. The fact that every single one of us is called to that work is inescapable. And to, to just go a little bit further, you do this a lot more than you know you do it, probably. Now, I want to just throw out a few examples. Do you ever give advice to anyone? 
under any circumstance. You're like, well, no, I'm not that person. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You do that. At various, if it's something you think you know something about, and you're in conversation with someone, you may be as kindly as suggestive as possible, but you will, you'll feel internally the urge to do that. Do you ever discipline a child? Do you ever pray for your spouse certain things specifically? You ever lend a book to anyone? You ever comment on Facebook about a social ill? <laughs> in all of these things, you're in some way, in some shape or form, spiritually training or discipling. You're thinking, I've got something that's going to help somebody. The question is, the things that you're saying and the heart by which you're saying them, do they accord with the truth and the love of Christ? That's the question. That's the question. And because, because what Paul is actually calling us to here is to not lean on our own understanding, as Proverbs 3 says, but to lean on the Word of God. And that we are to be bringers of the truth of the Word of God, and that's actually the goal of what it is that we are called to do. Now, when we do that, here's, here's I think, the biggest struggle. After not knowing the Word of God, which is one of the reasons we don't bring the Word of God to each other, is we inadequately know how to use it or to bring it in relationship with one another. But next to that is we know oftentimes the Word of God brings an offense. Sometimes it's scary to bring the Word of God to someone else because we almost always know that it's going to bring correction. We may not be immediately liked or the message that we give may not be immediately embraced. And let, me, let, me tell you, let me tell you why that's the, the case. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul tells us about the Word of God, and he says all Scripture, right? You know this passage. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching positive discipline, as we were talking about at the beginning of our time together, for reproof, negative discipline, <laughs> for correction, negative discipline, for training in righteousness, positive discipline. That's what he says. So if you're going to rely on the Word of God, it means at times you're going to say wonderfully positive things that will be greatly encouraging to people. And then you will say very difficult things that will rub people wrong and will be an offense to people. And what that means is we've got to be actually committed to the Word of God, its goodness and truth and love to such a degree that we are willing to godly confront one another when the time comes us to do so. We've got to be equipped and committed to actually do that work. Say it another way, we've got to love each other enough to do that. We've got to love each other enough to do that because truth is, that's really what's needed. Now, we need to love each other enough to be able to take the holy risk of saying something that might be hard the fact of the matter is love demands that we speak the truth and the truth that we read in the scripture demands that we do it in love. But there is no excuse clause or there is no parenthetical phrase in the Bible that says it's okay to remain quiet even when something's really, really wrong. And, and it's okay to kind of shortcut the truth on this matter. Or it's okay to kind of truncate things. It's okay to turn a blind eye. Because those are the temptations that most of us actually face. Even right now, it may be in your family, it may be with your spouse, it may be with children, it may be with friends, it may be with extended family. 
But there are people who desperately need to hear the truth of God from you that you are scared to death to speak to. And in actuality, in the instincts of your own mind and heart, you think, if I do speak the truth to them, bad things will happen. Even though God often promises to do really good things when we do that. Now, our instincts are partly right. <laughs> Sometimes when we speak the word of God, do very hard things happen. Yes, they do. But here's what we absolutely know. If we never speak the word of God, will bad things happen? Most assuredly. But if we speak the, God, speak the word of God, is it possible that good things by the grace of God will happen? Absolutely. And it's the only way that we're promised that things will happen. It's the only way. Do we love each other enough? Do we love our family enough? Do we love our coworkers enough? Do we love our friends enough to take the holy risk of speaking the truth in love? This is essential to repentance. Let me just pause and ask you to remember a time where you were confronted, rebuked, reproved, in some way, shape, or form. And think about the emotions and the experiences that you walk through in that. You can probably conjure negative experiences. But if you're in Christ and you've walked closely with the body of Christ and a loving brother or sister has faithfully walked with you and confronted you in the truth, you probably have more than one instance to where that had a life-changing impact upon you. Where friends gathered around or a pastor or a, or a family member said, this is so hard for me to do, but I've got to say this because I love you. And we never like going through those experiences, but isn't the greatest fruit that often comes from our life passing through those moments? Uh, when, when kind of a, a shivering honesty about the reality of who we are and what we've done can no longer be avoided. I remember it very well the first time that it happened to me as a fairly young teenager when um, one of my uh, mentors in the faith took me aside over a Shoney's breakfast. Very kindly took me out, began to talk to me about some things and could spot some trajectories within the character of my own heart and the ways in which I was acting, speaking, and exhibiting um, terms of my own behavior that were out of accord with sound doctrine, out of accord with the love and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember the sting and the embarrassment of those moments. And right now, even as I preach to you, I can go back to that moment just a little bit. And you know what that moment also is? A turning point. A turning point. Where I was shook into having to come to terms with some sin that was unrepented of. With a pride that was resident. Um, with, a, with recognition that if I continue to live and give in to this pattern of behavior, it's going to continue to send me off course into what will likely be disaster. I'm very grateful. I'm very, very grateful for that moment of confrontation. In the moment, did I love it? You know, if you were to call me up tomorrow morning, you know, after this sermon, you go, Nate, I want to meet with you because I want to reprove you. You know, I want to rebuke you. You know, I probably wouldn't turn to Tony or Greg on the staff and go, you won't believe what's going to happen tomorrow. I can't wait. Somebody's going to rebuke me. 
you know, right? Nobody, nobody does that. In fact, I'm going to like, you know, stare at the ceiling all night wondering what I've done and do they know about that? Do they know about this? And, you know, what could this possibly be, right? Now, the recognition is that whole experience to that fear that begins to rise up in the midst of it is actually the evidence of how badly we need that. How badly we need someone to have truth-telling and receiving relationships with each other that are couched in love and in grace, not in condemnation. Because we love each other so much that we so desire to see Christ formed in you and we know that as long as you give in to this path or into this way, something bad will continue to happen. This disaster will continue to ensue. And so we've got to, if we're, if we're going to, to actually gain the spiritual gumption to take these kinds of steps with each other, we're going to have to avoid two things that, that I see happen all of the time, not just within our body of Christ, but within human experience, and I see it within, within my own heart. Two approaches that I think we, we often opt for rather than speaking the truth in love, and I think these need to be explored just for a moment. And the first approach I'm going to call love without, tr- uh, love without truth or the smile and say nothing approach. This approach, very regularly, <laughs> very regularly, it will be the kind of, you know, I just love so-and-so so much, and I see this bad thing that's going on in their lives that really needs to be addressed by somebody, hopefully not me, and I just don't want to hurt their feelings or damage the relationship, so I'm not going to say anything. Or if I'm forced by some circumstance to have to speak to this person at some point, I'm going to do my very best to trim away the truth to make it as soft and as palatable and as easy as it could be. Because I'm really shaking in my boots to do this. Now there's an appropriate sobriety to the exercise of speaking the truth in love and then there's an unhealthy fear of man. There's a healthy sobriety of the fear of the Lord that you begin to say, who is equipped for these things? No one. And there's no way that I could potentially say everything just perfect and hold my jaw just right so that they absolutely receive it in a way that I want them to. I know because I'm in situations that are hard with a lot of people all the time, right? And you're in those situations, and I, you know, I'm, I quit guessing. You know, oh, this is a small matter. It'll go smoothly, and it blows up. This is a huge matter. There's no way we'll overcome it. It goes smoothly. You just never know how the grace of the Lord is going to work. You never know how he's going to operate. But what he does say is speak the truth in love. That's what he does say. Let the chips fall where they may with regards to the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's often in this love without truth model that we have in some ways assumed we've equated love with niceness or politeness. It's I just want things to be sweet. I just want things to be sweet. And that is not a definition biblically that we can uphold. I mean, if we love someone, is it possible to sit idle and let them move towards sinful destruction? Love by its very necessity has to speak. And so as, as, we're, as we're talking through this, begin to test your own heart. Where are you on this? Do you default in this direction to the avoidance of truth in the name of love? Or secondly calling this the truth without love approach, or the I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. This person says, you know, so-and-so is so messed up in their thinking or their life, no one 
uh, will do anything about it, and so I'm going to set them straight. Now, you can hopefully hear the kind of trigger-to-truth tendency that's in this person. Um, in this case, they're going to rush into a situation with both barrels blazing, you know, rebukes and reproofs flying off the wall, wherever it is that they go, and they've not checked their heart. They've actually maybe frustrated by this person. Um, they may have latent anger or unresolved issues with this person. They've not taken it yet to Christ. They're not filled with love of God and love of neighbor as they go in. In some ways, their heart's broken and softened and tenderized by the gospel to be able to speak the truth in love. There's not a patience and a kindness that is of the very quality of love as defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's, it's I'm going to go in and tell the truth regardless of how it is they're going to take it and they're just going to have to deal with it, right? You can see Paul's wisdom when he says, speak the truth in love. He's saying, I want the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbors yourself to be the heart by which you say, brother or sister, I've got to share this with you. I've got to share this with you. Um, if you're in that posture, and if you're in the spiritual climate of love as you begin to speak truth, what begins to happen is the person who's listening and receiving this godly reproof, this truth-telling, will often pick up on the fact that they are deeply loved by you. They are deeply loved by you. You've come to them not because you just love this stuff. You've come to them because you care for their soul. You want to see them become the people in whom God has called them to be. Now, just as I've said we've got to be a people who can do godly confrontation, we've got to be a people who can receive godly confrontation. You know, that, my heart has to be checked on this. You know, when you are a minister of the gospel, one of the things that you do you sit with people and you talk about truth and you talk about grace and you seek to bring peace and you're in the midst of a lot of things. And you know what you also do in those situations? You also sin. And you make mistakes. And you fall short. And what often happens in godly confrontation is the person who's bringing the truth to bear also has something over time that they too have to confess. And they too have to receive godly confrontation. If you're one who's happy giving godly confrontation but not receiving godly confrontation, you don't have truth in love. <laughs> you just don't have, you don't have truth in love yet because you've not yet realized that you need this as much as you need to give this. Those around you need your voice in order in, in, in this instruction, but you need this as much as they do. And so what you begin to realize if you're falling into any of these approaches, love without truth or truth without love, is you're revealing in many cases that you love yourself more than you love God or others. In the avoiding of the truth case, you're just eaten up with fear so much or people pleasing to some degree that you're unwilling to do what God expressly says to do. Uh, in the truth without love approach, you're letting pride consume you. You get on your soapbox, you grind your axe just because it makes you feel better. And really, it has nothing to really do with love of the other person as much as it is you just want to set them straight. And this is why when you begin to dive into godly confrontation and you begin to do it for the spirit of repentance, 
you'll begin to find just how needy you are for the cross. Um, just how needy you are for the cross. It's the hardest work in many ways to do to speak the truth in love. Th think of how you fret over it if ever you have to do it. <laughs> and think of how you avoid it at all costs. And then until you can't avoid it and you explode. And you do it wrongly. And you realize, I just can't win for losing. You know? Even though I'm trying to do what it is I need to do, I keep falling short, which reminds you so gratefully of your need for the cross. Because you know what the cross is? It's the meeting of truth and love. It's the meeting of truth and love. It's, it's the truth of God's holiness and intolerance for sin meeting his love for you and his grace for you, seeking to redeem you and change you and make him you into his son simultaneously. God knows the pain of godly confrontation because he experienced it in Jesus on the cross. He confronted the evil one. He confronted our sin. He's telling the truth about who we are, but he's not moving away from us. He's moving towards us. And he's doing it in love. He's not saying nothing with a smile. And he's not giving us a piece of his mind. He's in love moving towards us by grace and truth. And he's saying, listen, when you begin to understand that the very essence of the cross says, you are broken and a sinner and you better come to terms with that. But I love you more than you can imagine. And I have given my son to save you from your sin and to draw you into relationship with me. When you begin to see the combination of those two things, you begin to realize truth is not limited or truncated and love is not sacrificed, but they're beautifully come together in the gospel. And if we're going to walk in the crucible of taking up the cross daily and following him, we've got to walk in the confrontation that is the cross. A place that both speaks to the truth of our brokenness and extends to us the love and acceptance and grace of God simultaneously. And as we begin to move towards that as a local congregation, thinking about what becoming a community of repentance really means, I believe that you'll find to help more and more just how needy we are. Just how needy we are and how desperate we are for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to ponder even as we close in prayer, who is the person or persons in your life whom you know, even in the midst of this sermon, the Lord's been bringing them to mind. You've been dancing around all kinds of stuff. And they're eternally on a path to destruction. And you're one of the vessels of mercy and grace and the representatives of Jesus Christ they know. And is your silence failing to measure up to the principle of speaking the truth in love? Or have you been the person that's just ticked off people because of the way in which you have addressed them, not in love, and you've left a wreckage of relationships and collateral damage that now many pieces of which you don't even know how to pick up? Where is the Lord calling you into the midst of this? And where does he want us to go as a local congregation following? As we press into this nature of repentance, we're asking the Lord to do that kind of work in our hearts, to be the people who can give and receive truth and love. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, even as I'm praying right now, I would ask that you would indeed show every single one of us in this room the particular person's and the particular circumstances of which you are calling us into. Forgive us for the ways in which we have neglected this, for the ways in which we want to throw it off. We need your help right now. Would you come in proportion to our needs and lead and guide us? 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.